I appreciate your prayers this morning as I begin. I've been sick all week and I'm praying for my voice to hold up. And then as soon as I'm done here, I leave and drive to Dallas to officiate a wedding this evening. And so I needed to carry over a few more hours. So I would really covet your prayers. There's so much going on at Melanie Park, we have a tendency to leave things out. And one of the things that we left out this week was uh, Lubbock Impact and our opportunity to serve with that ministry to those who uh, need food and clothing and other things. And so, uh, Linda, I think what we should do this week is send out something to the church body. When you receive it, it's April 11th, I believe, um, and we need as many volunteers, April 10th, thank you. That's the signal, April 10th. Um, we need as many volunteers who are willing and able, and uh, if you have not done it before, let me encourage you to come. It's a great way to serve, as you hopefully will be encouraged this morning through our time in the Word. Uh, it's an experience outside of your own little world that may just broaden your perspective where, of where God's at work, and so would encourage you to consider that. Well, my good friend Dusty Thompson serves as a pastor down the road at Redeemer uh, Church. I love Dusty, love the ministry of, of Redeemer. As many of you know, Redeemer is a part of what's known as the Acts 29 Network, the church planning network that started in the early 2000s, and uh, I think it's a really creative name. As you know, we've been going through the book of Acts, and so hopefully you know there are only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. So Acts 29 is intended to reflect the next chapter in God's work through His church, and I think it's just brilliant and creative. And as I thought about that, well, we're probably not nearly as creative as that around here, but um, what we tried to do last weekend and try to do uh, every year at some level as we talk about missions is kind of our version of Acts 29. It's a reminder of what God put on the heart of this little church back in the early 80s when he prompted us to consider what it means to raise up people from within this body, to come alongside them, to train them, to equip them, and then to, to send them out to serve wherever the Lord might lead. But not just send them out, but to remain connected with them. So that when we have a weekend like we did last weekend, it's more like a family reunion where people we have known and loved for many years come back home. Because this will always be their church home. They will always be a part of our church family. And we want to preserve that no matter what it looks like in the, the years to come. That's why I wrote what I did in the back of the bulletin this week. And if you haven't read that, let me urge you, please do. Because I think it really does reflect the heart of this church body and would uh, ask that you just take some time to consider that. As Keegan reminded us last week, it's very rare. It's very unique in today's world to see a church body maintain relationships with its missionary, missionaries that have been sent out for, in some cases, over 30 plus years. It just doesn't happen very often in our world today. It's an attribute of what God has put on our heart that we want to preserve in the years to come. Missions may look different from one season to to the next, and I, I'm sure it looks different from one church compared to another, but here's what I do know, is that we're all trying to be faithful to what God has put on our heart and asked us to carry out within our local bodies, and the truth of the matter is this, God's heart to see his church impact the world didn't begin with Acts 29, 
It didn't begin in the early 80s with Melanie Park Church. We see it most clearly revealed in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we see clearly God's heart for the world. As we've seen, God has been working through this certain apostle named Peter. As we've learned, Peter was staying with a certain tanner named Simon. We know that while he was there staying at that house, that there were some men sent by a certain centurion named Cornelius. All these things are certain because they have been ordained by God. God is at work to build a new community of ambassadors for Christ who are filled with the Spirit. Also known as the church. What has been kind of a, a Jewish movement within the Jewish culture has now spread and in, in, in many ways exploded into the Gentile world. In this, God has removed every ethnic, every cultural, every political, every social barrier that exists. Because God so loved the world. Not just some, but all. That He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. The love of God knows no boundary. In Acts chapter 10, that is explicitly clear. And as we think about that, I want us to be honest and admit to ourselves that although we know that's true about God, it's very often not true for us. It's hard. It's hard to break free from those social and cultural norms. It's hard to view others created in God's image from God's point of view. But that's why we have the book of Acts. It's a reminder of God's original plan for His church. So that no matter what creative names or innovative strategies that we might come up with, we always know that we have a blueprint with which to align the heart of God's people with God's plan revealed in His Word. And His heart for the world should forever be evident in our individual lives. That was always the case. Now, more than ever. And so, before we consider what that looks like in His Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we confess to You that it's easy to be distracted. It's easy to be narrow in our focus. It's easy to lose sight of Your heart for the world. But, Lord, we don't want to get lost in our own little world, and miss out on what you've called us to be as your people, as your church, as a new community of spirit-filled ambassadors for Christ. So Lord, would you stir within us this morning a reawakening of that vision, not created by man, but given by you, our sovereign God, to your people as a church. So as we open your word, open our heart, Open our minds and motivate us through the work of your Spirit to faithfully live out what you've called us to be. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 11 is where we're going to begin this morning. So if you would uh, turn there with me. 
You can follow along, Acts chapter 11, verse 1. <clears throat> now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now I want to pause there because if you'll remember from Carrie's sermon a couple of weeks ago, what being referred to here is the the visit that Peter made to Cornelius's house there in Caesarea. During that visit, we know that Peter shared the story of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He explained how Jesus died for our sins on the cross, how Jesus was buried, and how Jesus rose from the grave, conquering the power of sin and death, so that everyone who believes receives forgiveness in him. We learn that while Peter was still speaking those words of truth to those who had gathered in that home, that the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And the evidence of the Spirit at work is that they began speaking in tongues and exalting God. I really like what Peter or what Carrie suggested last week, that perhaps these Gentiles were speaking in the native tongue of the Hebrews. So that they were hearing it in their own language. Which would have mirrored exactly what happened at Pentecost. As the apostles were speaking and all the people were hearing it in their own native tongue. I think that's very much what was happening there in the house of Cornelius. That's why Peter affirmed that what was taking place in that room was exactly the same thing that took place on Pentecost. He was a witness to their sincere faith in Jesus Christ. So as a result, Cornelius and and all his household were baptized as an affirmation of their belief in Christ. This is an unprecedented event. So much so that that Peter stays along with them for, for several more days, eating with them and fellowshipping with them. And during that time, Word began to spread about all that was happening, and it made its way into Judea, the hub of the Jewish community. What they were hearing is there was a a new movement that was taking place beyond the boundaries of the Jewish culture. It caused some to rejoice and and others to question. To the point, as it says in verse 2, that some of the Jewish Christians were taking issue with Peter. Now, before we get too critical about their concerns, let's remember what Peter confessed when he shared this story back in chapter 10. So look at chapter 10, verse 28. This is Peter speaking. And Peter is saying to them, You yourselves know, speaking to his Jewish brothers and sisters, how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. See, The Jewish Christians are objecting because they are trying to protect the integrity of their faith. A practice that had been ordained by God. In fact, they're objecting for the very same reasons that Peter was unwilling to take up and eat the unclean animals in his vision. See, those dietary restrictions were used by God to set them apart from other nations. You'll remember that what's on the table 
has a direct impact on who's at the table. It was unlawful for Jews to compromise their convictions of faith in order to associate with Gentiles, to associate with foreigners, precisely because God had set them apart. They were a holy nation, a light to the Gentiles, a royal priesthood. They were taking issue with Peter because apparently he was setting all that aside in order to fit in with the Gentiles. You see, these well-intended Christians are viewing salvation from a cultural lens. They're seeing it from an old covenant point of view. See, from that perspective, Gentiles could come in. They were welcome. They were called proselytes. They could practice the the Jewish ceremonies of cleanliness and, and dietary restrictions, and they were welcome, embraced within that Jewish community. But the Jews could not compromise those same convictions in order to fellowship with the Gentiles. Do you see the difference? So God clearly has reserved his covenant blessings for those set apart as a covenant people. These Christians are only trying to preserve what God had clearly ordained. What we've got to realize is that Peter, at this point in time, is the only one who's had a vision of something different. Which is why, in the following verses, Peter goes into such detail to describe exactly what happened. Look at verse 4. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence. He's very intentional here. When he says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it and was observing it, I saw four-footed animals of the earth and of wild beasts and of crawling creatures and of birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. It's important to understand that everything Peter has said up to this point affirms everything that they have known to be true. In many ways, he's relating to their objection. He's refusing to compromise what God had clearly ordained. He's affirming their convictions of their old covenant faith. And there's only one acceptable reason why that would ever change. Look at how he continues in verse 9. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And everything was drawn back up into the sky. It's no accident that this vision was repeated three times for Peter to see it. It was repeated to emphasize a divine declaration. Peter's actions, as he would then carry on from there, were not self-determined. They were God-directed. He was being introduced to something new. 
Something completely unexpected. Look at how he continues in verse 11. Behold, at that moment, three men appeared before the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgiving. And these six brethren also went with me. And we, encountered, we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he shall speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As Peter continues to recount this experience, these words look very familiar, but we do have some new information here. We learn that Peter took six Jewish men with him to Cornelius' house. And the reason he did that is in order to have witnesses. So it didn't stand on the opinion of one person. There were actually seven Jewish men who faithfully walked into the house of Cornelius. We also learned some of the details of what the angel said to Cornelius. Not only did the angel tell Cornelius what to do, he also explained why. Look again at verse 14. It says that Peter will speak the words by which you will be saved. And not only you, but you and your household as well. Now, let's not forget that when we look back to when Cornelius was first introduced, we learned there that he was a, a devout man fearing the Lord with all his household. In other words, he believed in the one true God, the God in which the Jews worshipped, despite the fact that he lived in a Roman culture that was surrounded by a multitude of false gods. Not only did he believe, we learned that he faithfully lived that belief out by caring for the poor, giving to those in need. He was a man of consistent prayer. Cornelius and his family genuinely looked to the Lord with a heart of worship. They trusted in God's provision as a, as a sovereign God. The angel is promising to reveal the salvation of the Lord. They will hear a message that explains God's plan of redemption. And if they trust in Him, it will be the day of their salvation. What we know is that the message that Cornelius and his household heard that day was the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins. And anyone who trusts in God will find salvation in Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we can be saved. That's why the angel spoke with such certainty. He didn't say you might be saved. He didn't say you could be saved. He said you will be saved. You and all your household. There is a certainty of salvation for those who trust in the Lord. For those who are genuinely looking to God for His provision of hope and salvation, they will be led to know and follow Christ. Because what the answer you're looking for, that your heart is longing for most, is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you trust in the Lord, that's where He will lead you 100% 
of the time. Peter is explaining all the things that God has done beforehand. These are his works. This is his idea. So that they could then walk in them. This was not Peter's plan for church growth. This was a divine initiative. In fact, Peter, based on his response to the dream, would have rejected the idea altogether. But instead, he's learning that God is doing something new and it has a divine stamp of approval being put on it. Look at verse 15. He goes on and says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as He did upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord when He used to say, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When Peter references this time where he says, in the beginning, he's talking about Pentecost. That's the time when God began to do something new. He's explaining how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles just as it did with the apostles at Pentecost. And this is significant, and here's why. The Spirit of God is the presence of God among those upon whom believe. The Spirit of God is the presence of God in the life of those who believe. And God's holy presence cannot dwell among those who are unclean. So the only way that God is present in the life of the Gentiles is if they have been cleansed of their sin. Which explains why the angel said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy God is doing something new he's doing something that the law could have never accomplished in and of itself and Peter in beginning to put some of these puzzle pieces together starts to connect some of the words of Jesus and he looks back to the time that Jesus said that that John baptized with with water but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit now to understand this connection we need to understand the practice of ritual bathing within the Jewish community. Ritual baths were a part of the Jewish culture. They were symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. So if you were to go to Israel next year, and you're walking up the southern steps of the temple that still exist, you will find what are called mikvahs. Now, a mikvah is a Jewish bath where people who were visiting the temple would go in for a spiritual cleansing before walking into a holy place but the ritual was symbolic because water on your skin cannot remove sin in your heart Peter looks at John's baptism in a very similar way you remember John says that he preached a baptism of what of repentance it's a baptism of repentance well what's repentance repentance is a confession of sin it's not the removal of sin That's why John introduces Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a baptism to remind you of your need for a Savior in whom you find forgiveness. The law didn't remove sin. It exposes sin and exposes our need for a Savior who forgives sin. But now, Jesus is doing something new. And He's promising A new baptism, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's so important to understand when we make this connection. 
a baptism of the Holy Spirit is not symbolic. It is an actual redemptive work of God. It, it doesn't picture something. It accomplishes something. Do you see the difference? It's really important to understand the two. This is the new work of God that is going on unprecedented up until this point. John baptized with water so that you could expose the reality of sin and turn your hearts to a Savior. Jesus is the one who comes as that Savior for the forgiveness of sin and baptizes you with the Holy Spirit which washes you clean for all eternity. Not symbolically, but eternally effective. Do you see the difference? It's the fulfillment of a new covenant promise. Turn, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. This is a prophetic word from Jeremiah hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ looking to the day in which this promised Messiah will come and listen to the words of God as he speaks of this day when he says in verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. Notice who's speaking. This is God. It's a promise from Him. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that's the old covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. It says, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, I was faithful to them, they were unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And here's what's going to happen. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach again each man to a neighbor, each man to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me, because I will make myself known. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Here's the key. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's why Jesus, when he celebrated that last supper with his disciples, took the cup and said, this cup represents the blood of a new covenant. It's why Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. It's very important to understand that this is not a temporary cleansing. This is a new creation. A redemptive work of God that is of eternal significance. God is doing something new, but it is based on a promise of old. It's something that he said he would always accomplish. He is creating a new community of spirit-filled ambassadors for Christ, which we know today as the church. One in which there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but those who have been set apart to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
Look at how Peter goes on to explain in verse 17 of our passage. He says, if God therefore, notice who's the initiator, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in the way of God? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to eternal life. Peter is explaining how the Gentiles have been grafted into this promise made to Israel. You'll notice back in Jeremiah 31, it's a promise to Israel in the house of Judah. But we learn here that based on God's initiative, the Gentiles have been included into this new covenant promise. He's saying, this is God's idea. He's the one who has taken the initiative. We are his witnesses. God has granted to to the Gentiles a repentance that leads to eternal life. The doors of the gospel have swung wide open to anyone who believes. Makes me think back to that time when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. You remember when he gets to Peter, Peter protests, right? And he says, no, I, I can't let you do that. If you'll remember what Jesus said during that time, he actually tells Peter, this won't make sense to you now. You won't understand it in this moment, but you will later on. And he goes on and explains and says, if I do not cleanse you, then you do not belong to me. You remember Peter says, well, then don't just stop with my feet. Wash my whole body because I want to belong to you. Maybe this is when Peter understands those memorable words from Jesus. If the Gentiles have been cleansed by God, then clearly they belong to God. And the only right response to the redemptive work of God is exactly what you see in this passage. Praise, glory, and not just praising God, but embracing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life now i know you've heard that verse many times you've considered god's heart for the world there's no denying the reality all throughout scripture it is explicitly clear in our passage my question to you this morning is If that's God's heart for the world, is it at least possible that at times our world is way too small? Because like I said in the beginning, it's really hard. It's really hard to break free from social and cultural norms. It was hard for the Jews. We see them struggling with that. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us to see others created in the image of God from God's point of view. We get wrapped up in our own world, and I'm here to tell you, that world is too small. I know for Terry and I, it's been easy for us to let our world revolve around our family. As long as our family's good, then life is good. We want to give our kids the best opportunities possible. We want them to have a good education. 
We want them to have great friends. We want them to be involved in, in sports and good grief. That's a life of its own these days. And somewhere in the midst of all that craziness, we want them to grow in their faith. But as many of you know, a world that revolves around our family can become very consuming. So much so, listen to me, so much so that our kids begin to think that the world revolves around them. And I'm here to tell you, that world is way too small. You've heard me say it before, and I believe it's true. Your home, parents, mother, father, your home is your primary mission field. I believe that's true. But let me clarify, it is not your only mission field. I loved what <clears throat> Jim Walker said on Saturday morning at the men's breakfast. He talked about how one of the ways that they minister with the international community in their neighborhood is they have cookouts. And he found that whenever he would take his grandkids with him, people were much more willing to have a conversation, right? Kind of broke down defenses because the kids were along. And, and the kids were invited to come and be a part of whatever they were doing. I think that's awesome because it gave them some new opportunities to reach out to their community, but it also invited their kids into the opportunity to see the love of God that extends to the uttermost parts of the world. Sometimes we can get too focused on our kids. Sometimes we can get too focused on a career. And with that one, we can be really creative. Because we can convince ourselves that, you know, if I can just put my focus on my career and get enough leverage to be successful, then I'll then leverage that success for kingdom purposes. Or maybe, as long as I can just get a little more stable in my job, then I can really turn my heart towards ministry. That is a lie from the enemy. Because if your heart is not on the mission of God in the beginning, it's not going to be in the end. Your life is your mission. No matter where you are. No matter what you do. When we get too focused on our family, that world is too small. When we get too focused on our career, that world is too small. When we live, listen to me, when we live the American dream, that world is too small. One of the reasons the missions weekend is so important is because it helps us see beyond the limits of our own little world. It challenges us to let God determine how He might want to use our life, to consider how He might be moving us into to something new, something completely unexpected, going where God leads, even if that extends beyond the limits of our own little world. So as we finish up this morning, I'm going to give you some time to really reflect on this because it's really easy on a missions weekend like we had last weekend to check it off the list and then just move on. We will not do that because missions weekend is only intended to be a reminder of how we should be living every single day. And so I want you to take some time and I want you to consider that question that I've posed to you this morning. Ask yourself sincerely, is my world too small? Is your focus so narrow that you've lost sight of God's heart for the world? 
is your, now listen to this, is your ministry limited to those who are willing to come into your world but not so open to going out into theirs? See, that's what the Jewish people were struggling with. I'm okay with telling you about God as long as you're willing to come into my world to hear about it. But when God does something new, he swings the doors wide open and he says, look, Doug, I want you to go to their world. I've changed your world, John. You're a new creation in Christ. This is eternally significant. It's not symbolic. You've been made new. So take that and go into the world around you. Because that's the only reason we're here and not with him. So, just for the next few moments, stop and consider the question. Is my world too small? Just take some time to think about that. As you think about that first question, I want to prompt you to consider a second question. If your world is too small, then where might God be inviting you into something new? We see very clearly that the gospel breaks down every ethnic, every cultural, every social, every political barrier that exists. So are there people Or are there situations that you have been resistant to approach that you need to pursue? Are there places that you need to go that you've been unwilling to enter into? And one other thing along those same lines. I want you to consider maybe this morning that you are Cornelius. That you have been looking to God to help you see the way. And God has made that way known through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you are being invited into the family of God. 
the place in which you find forgiveness of sins, and not temporarily, but eternally. Past, present, and future. A new creation in Christ. So would you consider this morning the possibility that that is what God is speaking to you? Would you consider this morning how he might be calling you outside of your own little world into something new? Just take some time and to consider that this morning. close with this and thank you for your prayers it looks like I'm going to make it to the end you are spirit filled ambassadors for Jesus Christ blood bought children of God new creations old things gone new things come not new symbolically but new effectively for all eternity sins forgiven hope renewed and it lives within you because you have been cleansed, made right in the eyes of God. That's who you are. So with that in mind, I want to encourage you to take that hope that is within you and share it with the lost and the hurting around you. We should be glad to share the hope that is within us. And I don't know if you all recognize this as I did last week when Mark was showing those pictures of Mexico. In case you didn't notice, many of those people aren't with us anymore. They've gone to be with the Lord. Praise God for that. Because their faith has been made sight. But you and I are still here. And God has called a new generation of people to do what those men and women did for many years. To go outside of their own little world. And to share the love of Christ with those who might not enter into their space. So let me just encourage you to consider and to be prayerful that God might raise up a new generation within this body that would be so compelled because God is so real and at work in their life that they could not imagine not sharing that hope with those around them. I pray that those people are in this room this morning. I love you. And God loves you. And so may we share that love with all the world. Father, sometimes I just am struck with the reality that life is short. <laughs> this world is crazy. But you are so good.
you've called us to proclaim a worldwide message of hope found in Christ alone. Father, may we embrace that truth so deeply in our hearts that we live it out so faithfully in our daily lives so that when people see us, they recognize the love that you have for them. Help us to be bold enough to walk outside of the limits of our own little world to see the ways that you're at work in the world around us. Father, help us to look past many of the boundaries and barriers that happen within our culture, that are part of our society, but they have no place in the gospel. May this church family increasingly become everything you've called us to be as we reveal your heart, your love, for the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.